The attacks and riots, euphemistically called the events of Algeria, turned into the Algerian war, a war for independence. Curiously, the war seemed not to affect the Sahara. Foreign Legion troops camped close to the oil wells, but the FLN and Algerian rebels made no real attempt to sabotage the wells or the pipelines, as if wishing to preserve their future inheritance and spoils of war. Osin Malti, former vice president of Sonatar. The discovery of oil would change the country's geography. There was even a proposal from the French government to the FLN in 1957 whereby the Sahara would continue to be French territory. There would be a corridor between Hassim Messaoud and Bejaïa. Pipelines would be laid to take the oil to the north. And to the east and the west of this corridor would be an independent Algeria. The oil issue and France's proposal to separate the Sahara from Algeria plagued every attempt to find a peaceful solution. Oil from the Sahara fed France and Europe, and the war raged on for four long years. Talks were finally initiated between France and the FLN in Evian and an agreement was signed on March 18, 1962. Algeria obtained full sovereignty over the Sahara and its riches in exchange for certain guarantees concerning French oil supplies. In the heart of the desert is Hassi Massoud. With its 1,500 inhabitants, a chapel, a gendarme post, bakery, post office and swimming pool, no expense is spared on the new capital of French oil. Oleander bushes, palm trees and eucalyptus grow alongside the 300 wells. 14 million tonnes of oil are produced here and the flare stacks light up the desert night. Despite independence, Hassi Massoud remains a French enclave, exploited by French companies. Profits are enormous and the party is in full swing. But it's the last one. The Algerian president, Boumediene, turns off the music. Ouari Boumediene, Algerian head of state, 1965 to 1978. We've decided, as of today, that our socialist revolution will tackle the untouchable private sector. That is, the oil sector. We've decided to nationalize all the pipelines that will become the property of the state. On the morning of January 24, 1971, France wakes up with a hangover. The Algerian president has dared to commit to the unthinkable. For the first time in history, Algeria's oil is nationalized. Unlike Total, which accepted the new conditions, Elf abandoned Algeria. But France had to organize its oil future. Two men emerged from the wings. A former Gaullist Secret Service agent, Pierre Guillaume, director of Elf, and Jacques Foucault, a friend of General de Gaulle and an advisor on African affairs. Their mission is clear, to find oil in Africa 
and ensure France's energy self-sufficiency. The adventure began here in Gabon in 1956, in the marshy delta of Port Gentil, where the river Ogoué flows among mahogany and ebony forests. The first prospectors discovered oil at Azuri and Point Claret. One year later, the tanker Le Ronsard left the Cap Lopez terminal and set sail for Le Havre. Gabon became a protectorate of the French Republic, run by Jacques Foucault and Elf, in collusion with President Omar Bongo. Elf defined its own diplomatic relations with the blessing of the French government. Gabon without France is like a car with no driver. France without Gabon is like a car with no fuel. Bongo reportedly repeated that as a friend to France and all its presidents. Mark Ona, president of Brain Forest. It was Elf and France's African policy that put Bongo in Gabon for 40 years. That's an open secret, so they could work in peace. And who benefited from Elf's generosity? It was Bongo and his family. That's obvious. It wasn't the general population. I can't find any excuse or reason not to say that what happened in Gabon is economic genocide, was economic genocide committed by multinationals and the Gabonese leaders imposed by those same multinationals. But it didn't stop there. Elf extended its influence to a large part of black Africa, giving birth to what would be known as Franc-Afrique. Nigeria, Chad, the Congo, Cameroon, Angola. Elf would fund a variety of regimes and guerrilla movements. A pragmatic diplomacy where slush funds flowed in every oil-producing country on the continent. With bribes and embezzlement, Elf made fortunes for its executives and a few African leaders. In taking several billion francs from secret funds, African despots and the directors of ELF did more than just embezzle money. They created misery. Africa funded a substantial part of French political life. But in the ELF affair, this political funding was only a few percent. The bulk of the money made fortunes for ELF executives and their friends. Sea, sand, and the African sun. The daily life of the oil expatriate seems leisurely. But in a country of barely one million inhabitants, the daunting dependence on oil makes daily life difficult. The tomatoes come from South Africa and the potatoes from Paris. The state goes begging to the IMF. The oil money is gone, evaporated. The party is over. After eight years, thousands of hearings and statements, the Elf affair is concluded. The verdict falls in November 2003. Loac Le Prigion, former CEO. André Tellaro, the Corsican-born Monsieur Africa. And Alfred Sirven, the special ops man, extradited from the Philippines. All three are sentenced to prison. For its crimes, Elf is bought by Total, the French company joins the Seven Sisters private club. Libya, September 1st, 1969. With King Idris absent for medical treatment, a group of officers staged a coup d'etat 
and Muammar Gaddafi proclaimed a new Libyan Arab Republic. He was just 27 years old. The British people are now fully aware that their base no longer exists. For the Seven Sisters, the wind of change ushered in by Colonel Gaddafi would soon attain hurricane proportions. In 1970, he nationalized Libyan oil and against all expectations, raised the price of a barrel by 30%. In just a few months, the Seven Sisters were facing a serious enemy. Shukri Khanim, Libyan oil minister. Gaddafi gave a speech in the opening of the discussion. And he said one important word or sentence. He said, Libya lived 5,000 years without oil, and it is ready to live another 5,000 years without it. That was a big, big blow. The oil companies found out that we were serious. And to approve this, we cut the production from oil companies. Off the coast of Tripoli, in the Gulf of Gades, lies the Buri oil field. It's the largest in the Mediterranean. Gaddafi needed money to pay for his revolution. Oil would supply it. He also funded freedom movements around the world. Oil money would support the fight against imperialism and the Palestinians' cause. In 1982, the United States decrees a commercial embargo against Libya. Regularly renewed and intensified, that embargo would last until 2004 and seriously penalize the Libyan oil industry. I think we could fairly say Libya was enemy number one of the major uh, producing uh, companies, you know, especially the American companies. And one of the accusations against the country, uh, especially in the 70s and the 80s, was that Gaddafi, armed with so much money from the oil revenue, is actually spreading terrorism around the world. Along the Costa Esmeralda is the town of Olbia, where the turquoise waters are studded with luxury yachts. It's here that we find His Excellency, Sheikh Zaki Yamani, one of the most emblematic figures in Arab oil history. I was against raising the price of oil so quickly because it was against the interest of the Arabs and the oil producers. Maybe this is my crime. I don't know. On December 21st, 1975, a group of six gunmen entered the OPEC headquarters in Vienna. Eleven ministers and dozens of their colleagues were taken hostage. Their mission was to assassinate the Saudi oil minister, Sheikh Yamani. Leading the commandos was a Venezuelan, Ilich Ramirez Sanchez, known as Carlos. Carlos and me, we were talking, joking, and so on. I mean, he was very kind to me, but he told me that he's going to kill me. The commandos demanded a plane to fly to Algiers, and then Tripoli. Gaddafi refused to accept them, and the hostages were finally released in Algiers. Some people said because they want to kill Sheikh Yamani because Sheikh Yamani was in the hands of the Americans and the play for their interest and cutting the price down and increasing the production and helping IEA to build a big stocks to affect the oil price. Yamani, some people think that he worked completely against the interest of the Arab people and of Palestine and of OPEC. But nothing happened to Sheikh Yamani. Sheikh Yamani was released and nothing happened to him. Was there a deal? Sheikh Yamani will not say. In his prison cell, 
Carlos stated that Gaddafi was the instigator of the hostage-taking. We leave the sheikh and head for Sudan on the Red Sea. There, too, oil has fueled war. When Sudan became independent in 1956, the Arab elite in the north seized power in Khartoum. The southern regions were marginalized. The black African peoples in the south, Christians and animists, claimed autonomy for their region. And so began a civil war that would last almost 20 years. Gérard Prunier, historian. Everybody thought that there could be oil in Sudan, but nobody knew anything. It was revealed through exploration by the American company Chevron towards the end of the 1970s. That was the beginning of the Second Civil War, which lasted until 2002. It lasted for 19 years and cost a million and a half lives. And the oil business was at the heart of it. Blood and oil. Officially, Sudan has the fifth largest oil reserves on the African continent. But the majority of the oil fields are in the south. For Khartoum, war was inevitable, with its plague of horrors and massacres. The authorities in Khartoum were accused of genocide and crimes against humanity. In this context, the Chinese stepped in. Professor Michael Clare of Hampshire College. In this competition between the United States and China, it is often claimed that China behaves by different rules than by the United States and the Europeans. Uh, They don't have the NGOs scrutinizing their behavior, and, and they're not as much concerned by human rights. So in places like Sudan... Uh, They've developed a close relationship with President al-Bashir, who has been implicated with uh, massive human rights violations. Sudanese oil is vital for China's growth. And China has been generous to the Sudanese president, Omar al-Bashir. As a benefactor, China is an interested party... It's a strategy with few scruples. Just another way of doing business. Dong Shu Cheng, Director, Oil and Research Center, Beijing. We provide Sudan with capital and technology, which lets the country develop certain economic sectors, including oil. Ultimately, this is beneficial for the Sudanese people. We prefer a developmentalist vision to a human rights vision, because what rights can we talk about if there is no economic development? The Chinese builders move in. President al-Bashir can be proud of his cooperation with China. A dam on the Nile, roads and stadiums. In order to export half a million barrels a day from the oil fields in the south, China financed and built the Hedgelige Port Sudan pipeline. South Sudan's oil is shipped to the Middle Empire's ports. The Chinese brought slaves with them. It was quite an amazing operation with more than 25,000 workers who had received prison sentences, removed from Chinese jails and brought to Sudan. They were told, all right guys, there are picks and shovels, get to work. 
In a dramatic shift after 50 years of civil war, the unthinkable happens on a February morning in 2010. By a huge majority, southern Sudan obtains its independence. A new country is born. How will the oil revenues be shared out between the two Sudans? The question would spark off further conflict. The Western companies, the Seven Sisters, would re-enter the stage. But the Chinese are already well established. The South has 85% of the oil, but the only way to get the oil out is through the North. So the North has the tap, even if the source is the South. Back in Gabon, in the shadow of the Cap Lopez oil terminal, the African night is balmy. It's a new three-handed game. The Majors and the Seven Sisters are not alone here. The Chinese like Africa and show it. $10 billion in investments and loans over the next three years. Gabon needs a lot of money. The Seven Sisters have their work cut out. Mark Ona, president of Brainforest. When the government calls the oil companies, it's to say, look, we need money, can you give us an advance? The Gabonese state today is surviving on a drip feed. The multinationals are injecting money into the state coffers. So Gabon's oil has been mortgaged. A strike by workers at Total. Protests are organized at the Cap Lopez terminal. But there are few illusions. No one can defy the oil giant on its own ground. Every time there are protests in Port Gentil, the French army comes to restore order. You can see the pressure. There's pressure from the military, repression, and widespread corruption. So even when the people want to wake up, it doesn't work. It's impossible to sail around Port Gentil without running into the French army. Boarding today is relatively courteous. The Navy's 6th Infantry Battalion is in charge of the installation's security. Their motto is, in the name of God and the colonial troops. Life insurance for the Gabonese regime and the oil facilities. In this Gabonese El Dorado, where Bongo Jr. succeeds Bongo Sr., with the oil company's blessing, all that's left is a precarious well-being. Everything else has been stolen. On the western flank of Africa lies the Gulf of Guinea. In the past 20 years, oil production has doubled here, a new El Dorado. Mika Igni, lawyer. On the 500 Naira, Nigerian Naira notes, you find an oil platform, an oil rig, where the money for the prosperity of Nigeria has come for the past 50 years. But today, the people of Nigeria, the people of Niger Delta in particular, have no benefit from the resources from this oil that has produced this Nigeria. This is the heart of the crisis of Nigeria. The center of the crisis here could be Makoko, a lakeside shanty town in Lagos. With makeshift houses on fragile stilts, it's the last refuge of outcasts excluded from oil benefits. 
they squeeze into the slums of Africa's biggest metropolis, Lagos. The air is rife with the rank smell of cooking fires and foul, stagnant water. The stench of poverty. As always, it's a magnificent adventure. In the hostile jungle, men build iron cathedrals, delve into the entrails of the earth, and the first flare stacks spit out their fetid breath towards the heavens. In 1956, Shell opened up the flood of Nigerian oil, the country being a protectorate of the British crown. The first tanker loads of oil headed for Europe, as had palm oil and cocoa before it, and long ago, slaves for plantations in the New World. So quite frankly, the relationship between the Nigerian people, particularly those who call themselves leaders, and the oil company, the five major, is that of master-servant relationship. The oil company are the masters in Nigeria. The Nigerian people are now the servant to the oil company. It's a tragedy. And there's a map of Nigeria showing the important southern region of Biafra and its proximity to Gabon. Jean-Claude Sévran, journalist. Le Biafra... Biafra was the first major conflict after the independence wave in Africa. It was engineered by the Western powers who wanted Nigeria's oil land. The Igbos were supported by a number of Western countries, notably France, who wanted a foothold in those oil-rich lands, and it resulted in the deaths of more than a million people. On May 26, 1967, the region of the Christian and animist Igbos voted for independence from the central government, controlled by Muslims in the north. The Republic of Biafra was declared, triggering an appalling and murderous civil war. The new Biafra held two-thirds of Nigerian oil reserves. De Gaulle and Elf provided arms. It was one way of weakening the influence of the British companies, BP and Shell. Antoine Glazier, journalist. Elf lost the Biafran War, and it was the British companies who won it, BP and Shell. Africa's leading oil producer, Nigeria, is known as the African elephant. With 35 states, 250 ethnic groups, and over 160 million inhabitants, more than half the population attempt to survive on less than a dollar a day. In Lagos, the former capital in the south, Christian churches abound. With Pentecostals, Baptists and Adventists seeking to relieve both souls and pockets of rich and poor alike, many here have another, more derogatory name for the black gold. I disorganize them and them in the name of Jesus. Well, if it is the seed of God, I don't know that God that would, you know, uh, inflict that sort of harm on, on its own people. The Niger Delta, 7,000 kilometers of oil pipelines, 1,500 wells, tons of leaking oil burning the mangrove and men's skin. Massive pollution, bravely denounced, but in vain.
The Ogoni people are fishermen who've always lived in the mangrove and drew their resources from the Niger Delta. Ken Sarawiwa, who saw the creeks were getting polluted, that more and more pipelines were leaking, spitting out the devil's excrement into the rivers and the world's second biggest mangrove forest. And that was when Ken Sarawiwa began to fight. Ken Sarawiwa and Agoni denounced the collusion between Shell and General Abancha's dictatorship. He accused the oil company of polluting the environment and not sharing its staggering revenues with the local population. He succeeded in mobilizing thousands of people and the pressure forced Shell to stop production. On the company's request, the demonstrators were violently repressed by the police and the Nigerian army. There were hundreds of fatalities. Kensaro Wiwa was arrested and sentenced to death. On November 10, 1995, in Port Harcourt, Kensaro Wiwa was hanged, along with eight of his comrades. Everyone knows that Shell Petroleum Development Company was, um, was complicit in the uh, murder of Kensar Wewa. Uh, they were complicit because they, uh, in, for the most part, instigated a lot of the um, crisis, which ultimately led to the arrests, uh, trial, and uh, hanging of Kensar Wewa. A rough trail built by Shell to transport its workers, leads out of Port Harcourt and to Shell's facilities in the Delta. Filming is forbidden and there are frequent army roadblocks. In a country making millions, the water is undrinkable, the land unworkable, and the air unbreathable. Now we are not having a benefit that is coming from our land and the benefit is not given to us. Police, the army, are employed by the oil company to defend them. It's not we. Even, even if when we go to lay our complaint, they will drive us. Even when we are annoyed and block their way, the army will come. Sometimes they lock our children. And so emerged the movement for the emancipation of the Niger Delta, or MEND. With kidnappings and armed attacks, the movement combines illegal action with political claims. In 2008, it forced a 25% reduction in Nigeria's oil production. The world's crude prices soared. The government was obliged to propose an amnesty. Nimo Bassi, environmentalist. There will be violent conflicts since 2000, about 2005 or thereabout, kidnappings of people. They will kidnap people and then they will pay ransom. Government was paying, oil companies were paying. They paid the militants to protect the pipelines, so the business was booming. But it got to a point where the violence was a bit, getting a bit more intense and oil production was dropping. It dropped, really, really dropped. And so the whole, the singular purpose of the government in trying to stop the violence is to let the oil corporations open up the markets again. It is not an interest to, to sustain peace in the region. It's not an interest of cleaning up the oil spills or developing the, the region is simply to allow more oil to be extracted. 
Oil may be flowing into the holds of huge tankers, but in Lagos, petrol shortages are chronic. The country's four refineries are obsolete. The continent's main oil exporter is forced to import refined petrol, a paradox that reaps fortunes for a handful of companies. Encouraged by the oil companies, corruption has become a system of government. Some $50 billion are estimated to have disappeared out of the $350 billion received since independence. In July 2003, George W. Bush chose Nigeria for his first African visit. By 2020, with its high-quality reserves, Africa should be supplying 25% of America's crude oil. Several African governments face particular dangers from terrorists. And the United States is working closely with those nations to fight terror. And we will do more. I propose a new $100 million initiative to help those governments in East Africa protect their people and to fight terrorist networks. The United States, for reasons of energy security, seeks to diversify its sources of supply. And Africa looks very appealing because it's, it's, a, it's another option, an alternative to the Middle East, number one. Number two, Africa is right across the Atlantic from the United States. Africa is the new El Dorado for the United States and the Seven Sisters. So peace had to be made with the main producer, Libya. Too bad if Colonel Gaddafi was a criminal. Business came first. The former pariah of the international community was clean again. Oil business realism. The country opened up and its oil became the main attraction. All the experts agreed it's the most promising producer in Africa. Well, some people say things that there is a contradiction in the policy that, you know, for example, President Bush once and even before him, they look at Libya as uh, uh, one of the axes of evil or whatever. Then second day, it become a friends. Of course, uh, this is due to the fact that these countries have no friends and have no enemies. They have interests. We know that they are not because they love us. They come here. And, be, and we know that not because we love them that we allow them to come here, but there is a common interest for us. It serves our interest. And there is, in oil industry, it is a win-win situation for both of us. In 2003, Libya officially acknowledged the responsibility of its officers in the Lockerbie and UTA 772 attacks. In a cunning move, Gaddafi paid more than $2 billion in damages to the victims' families. The colonel's bet paid off. The sanctions were lifted. He was no longer persona non grata, an arrangement made of oil and dollars. You have a queue of uh, Western oil companies coming into the country. Okay. Any... any sensible, reasonable politician in the UK or in the United States for that matter would think twice about 
causing any harm to the relations with Libya because of the oil interest, mainly the oil interest. Abdul Basit al-Megrahi, sentenced to life imprisonment for the death of 270 people in the Lockerbie attack, was freed by the British in August 2009 for humanitarian reasons. According to the Sunday Times, his release was linked to the signature of an important oil contract with BP. For Downing Street, this was merely a coincidence. And oil must have been in the mind of the people who settled the issue of al-Magrahi. I'm sure of that. Muammar Gaddafi welcomed al-Magrahi as a hero on the Tripoli runway. Blood, dollars and oil. The price to pay for the Seven Sisters' return to Libya. Mount Ararat, at the crossroads between east and west. Wars among nations, among ethnic groups and fraternities have left ageless ruins and broken tombs. In the Caucasus, the American eagle and the Russian bear are vying for control of the region. The great oil game is in full swing. Steve Levin, journalist. One big reason why the United States is there is the residue of the Cold War. The United States wants to... Uh, it, it's, it's a way for the United States to battle Russia. It's a way to, uh, to, in the U.S. view, keep Russia in check in its own backyard, in the Caucasus and Central Asia. But one can say with some confidence that, that the U.S. wouldn't be there at this strength with this passion, if it were not for oil. Tbilisi, Yerevan and Baku, the three capitals of the Caucasus. Whoever controls the Caucasus and its roads controls the transport of oil from the Caspian Sea. The oil from Baku in Azerbaijan is a strategic priority for all the major companies. In Armenia, there is neither war nor peace with the Azeris. The slightest spark could trigger new hostilities. Oil is perhaps the reason. Almin Alvazian from the Arafat Center of Strategic Research. Is oil a source of wealth or conflict in the Caucasus? Both. War is being waged today for oil by the armies of neighboring countries and also by the great powers and the transnational companies. This war for oil is led by Russia and the West. Companies like BP, Exxon, Mobil, Gazprom from Russia. They're the main leaders of the war in the region. The road leads through a forest of rocking horses and derricks. For more than a century, they've been pumping black gold from the depths of the earth, making a fortune for Baku, the capital of Azerbaijan. The Caucasus stands as a border between east and west, a battleground for Russia, the United States, and the great oil companies. The oil of the Caspian Sea is a hotly disputed commodity. In the midst of the derricks stands the ancient temple of Ateshgar, the house of eternal fire. A former sanctuary for the Zoroastrians, fire worshippers who travelled the old Silk Road from India. Many still come here to pay homage to Azza, or fire. 
At the end of the 19th century, a Swedish family, the Nobels, established Baku as the world's oil capital. Known as the Merchant of Death, Alfred Nobel invented dynamite and earned a fortune. Ludwig Nobel ran an arms factory for the Russian Tsar. And Robert, the third brother, bought oil fields near Baku for just a few rubles. An inspired investment, as the region was rich with oil, that few were interested in. Emil and Emir Karimov, historians. In 1920, in Azerbaijan and the region around Baku, they extracted more oil even than was extracted from the United States. Oil flowed and immense fortunes were made. The Parisian bankers, the Rothschilds, arrived to break the Nobel's monopoly. They financed the construction of a railway line from Baku to the port of Batumi. Standard Oil and Royal Dutch Shell, among others, sought to benefit from the sea of oil. But their projects were thwarted by a Georgian, Stalin, who led Bolshevik uprisings among the derricks. The revolution broke out with a cannon shot fired from the cruiser Aurora. It was October 25, 1917. It would take Lenin three years to conquer Russia. And take Baku. Lenin sent a secret telegram on March the 17th, 1920. Baku must be taken. Baku is of vital interest to Bolshevik Russia and present-day Russia because we need oil. Lenin's wish was granted. The Red Army entered Baku and forced out the British, German, and Turkish troops, which had come to secure their oil. In April 1920, the 400 oil companies operating in Baku were all nationalized by the new Soviet regime. In Europe, black oil was flowing, as was a plague of brown shirts. In 1933, Hitler was elected Chancellor of the Reich, and he could put his great plans into action. The People's Car, the Volkswagen, was built. Industry worked overtime. And Hitler could plan his expansionist war. Nazi Germany had no oil, but the Chancellor had contacts. The German company IG Farben signed a cooperation agreement with the American oil company Exxon. Exxon provided Germany with the necessary patents for making synthetic petrol. Eric Laurent, journalist. The real problem of Allemagne. The real problem for Germany was its lack of access to raw materials. Germany had no oil, but it had created a range of synthetic oil products, and it was helped by Exxon. There was a collaboration between Exxon and IG Farben, which would become the biggest chemical corporation in the world. And which was a key element in the Nazi war effort. In the middle of what would become the Second World War, the American justice system would charge Exxon with criminal conspiracy. Under pressure from Congress, the charges were dropped, and the firm was discreetly fined a total of fifty thousand dollars. Business was more important than war, which was seen only as a transitory evil. On August 23, 1939, there was an upset. 
A non-aggression pact was signed between the Nazi regime and the communist state. An improbable alliance between Soviet Foreign Minister Vyacheslav Molotov and his Nazi counterpart, Joachim von Ribbentrop. Moscow lent its factories to Germany, secretly building up its army. But at the heart of the German concerns was oil. Between 1939 and 1941, Moscow delivered 65 million barrels to Berlin. And so it was Russian and American petrol that the US majors continued to provide in secret that fueled the German panzers as they swept across Europe. The 20th century opened with the awareness that future wars would depend on mechanized vehicles and therefore on oil. World War II was a good example. We can clearly see how the Nazi armies, by attacking Russia in 1941, aimed to get to the oil in the Caspian Sea. On his birthday, Adolf Hitler received a chocolate and cream birthday cake, representing a map. He chose the slice with Baku on it. This film is a pure product of the Soviet propaganda machine. Baku's oil is perhaps the real reason Operation Barbarossa was launched. On June 22, 1941, the armies of the Third Reich invaded Russia. The crucial battle of Stalingrad the key to the road to the Caucasus and Baku's oil would decide the outcome of the war. Stalin told his troops, fighting for one's oil is fighting for one's freedom. The battle was won. On January 31st, 1943, Field Marshal Frederick Parlas signed the German troops' capitulation. The Germans had lost the battle of Stalingrad and the war. After the Aknakari agreements, World War II was one of the most profitable events for the oil companies. For example, oil was loaded from Abadan in Iran to supply British or American vessels in that region. The oil companies charged the British and American governments a very high rate, as calculated at Aknakari, at a cost equal to transporting the oil from the Gulf of Mexico. This cost a fortune to the Allied war effort. It contributed to the extraordinary wealth of the oil companies. The oil companies made a lot of money, and not once did the British or American governments try to control them or influence their scandalous behavior. The Caspian Sea is awash with the traces of a murky past. The horses' heads maintain a steady pressure on the pumps that operate non-stop. Baku's oil kept the USSR's industry and war effort alive, but the Soviet Union had been weakened and needed to find new oil fields. The miracle would come from an Aziri man, Farman Salmanov, a geological genius. 
Without Moscow's consent, he began to explore near Surgut in Siberia, along the banks of the river Ob. Everyone thought he was insane. He was alone in thinking that there was oil beneath the Siberian wastelands. He believed that oil could be found in the region around Surgut. He cut off all communications so he couldn't be contacted or called back from the area. He prospected day after day, and finally, oil gushed from the ground. He sent a telegram to several leaders. He sent a telegram to Khrushchev in 1963. I found oil. That's it. Signed, Farman In the midst of the Cold War, this terse telegram would change the balance of world power and the Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev would celebrate victory. Farman Salmanov was later awarded the title of Hero of Soviet Labour and the Lenin Prize. The USSR became the second biggest oil exporter after Saudi Arabia. The communist Russian bear was standing proud and tall. Farman Salmanov has saved the Union Soviet en trouvant les gisements du pétrole qui servira les sources principales de revenus de l'Union soviétique en matière de devises étrangères. To transport the oil, the Druzba pipeline, or the Friendship pipeline, had two purposes. To supply the satellite republics as a reward for their total submission and to take the Russian oil to Europe's markets and its currency. In Apulia, in southeastern Italy, we're on the trail of a man who changed the course of oil history. An exceptional figure who, in 1953, created for Italy the powerful oil company ENI. After Italy's downfall in World War II, reconstruction was American-led and oil was supplied by the Seven Sisters. It was the price to pay for defeat. This exceptional man is called Enrico Mattei, the most important Italian since Julius Caesar, it is still said. A resistance hero and industrial genius, he decided to free Italy of its dependence on the oil majors. It was the beginning of a contest against those he called the Sette Sorelle, the Seven Sisters. Enrico Mattei launched his oil diplomacy campaign. In 1957, he signed a contract with Iran, leaving 75% of the profits to the producer. It was a bombshell in the Seven Sisters' backyard. He then turned to other countries, including Egypt and Nigeria. Nico Perone, historian. Mattei is seen as a pirate with his strategy and the conditions that he granted to the oil-producing countries. He's seen as a pirate because the main oil companies in the various countries and on the international stage were used to being more important than governments. And yet Mattei dared the unthinkable. He worked directly with the USSR and met with the head of the Soviet parliament, Andrei Grumiko. The Soviets agreed to deliver large quantities of oil at a low price. Mattei completely unsettled the balance 
He made agreements with the Soviets for oil imports at competitive prices. But above all, he changed the political and diplomatic balance fixed by the US and by Britain. So he became a marked man for the great powers. He was in their sights because of the game he played, which was not only industrial and commercial, but also of great political significance. So Matei was watched by the security services, particularly the Americans. On October 27, 1962, Enrico Matei's plane, a Solnia, crashed near Milan. There were no survivors. The investigation was botched. Bad weather was blamed for the crash. When the case was reopened in 1997, traces of explosives were found among the aircraft debris. It was a deliberate attack. The men behind the plot have still not been identified. Elected president in 1983, Ronald Reagan qualified the USSR as an evil empire. The Star Wars anti-missile programs were supposedly intended for protection from a nuclear war. But Washington's objective was, above all, to force the Soviets into an arms race. Ronald Reagan and William Casey, the director of the CIA, planned the first stage of the trap. The Great Bear Hunt was underway. The bear is a daunting creature. The Red Army, five million men and nuclear weapons. A vast war machine fueled by oil money. François Roche, journalist. To constantly counter American technological advances, the Soviets had to mobilize a lot of money. And what did they finance their military-industrial complex with? With raw material export revenues, essentially oil and gas. Essentiellement d'ailleurs du pétrole et du gaz. The second part of the trap would be laid by the Saudis. Reagan persuaded his ally, King Fahad, to use oil as a weapon to destabilize the USSR. In 1983, Saudi Arabia opened up the gates and flooded the oil market. Michael Economides, editor-in-chief, Energy Tribune. Reagan, by encouraging the Saudis to overproduce, collapsed the price of oil in the 80s. That brought about a disaster, by the way, in many countries. But the biggest effect was that the former Soviet Union, depending almost entirely on oil and gas uh, for its hard currency, the internal fractures of that regime became gaping chasms, gaping holes, and it collapsed. The rest is history. Through the Washington-Riyadh agreements, the United States controlled the world's principal oil outlet, an ultimate weapon in American hands. Steve Levin, a journalist. In the 1980s, the price of oil plummeted, and it plummeted to $13 a barrel. This cratered the, the, the Soviet economy. It didn't have the money any longer to keep itself afloat, to pay pensions, to pay coal miners, to buy coal miners' soap. 
to uh, to pay for the social uh, services that kept the populace uh, quiet, to pay for vodka. The Soviet bear was dancing no more. It was hungover and broke. The stores were empty, wages were unpaid, and trouble was brewing. President Mikhail Gorbachev was powerless. The country was ruined. The price of oil had definitively shattered the Soviet Union. 1989, the Berlin Wall falls. The Baltic states, Georgia and Armenia, declare independence. On December 25, 1991, Mikhail Gorbachev resigns as head of state. On the shores of the Caspian Sea is the Azeri capital, Baku. The image of former President Haider Aliyev is omnipresent. A former KGB director, when the USSR crumbled, the president was the providential savior of the new Azerbaijan. His idea was simple, to look to the West and call on the major oil companies. On September 24, 1994, guided by BP, the century's biggest contract was signed with 11 other oil companies. Without realizing it, Azerbaijan had entrusted its oil to the Seven Sisters. Aziri, Chirag, Guneshli. These new offshore oil fields, financed by the majors, promise untold treasures. President Haider Aliyev and his son Ilham can certainly rejoice. Their fortune is made and their power well establishes. Ilham Shaban, director of Caspian Barrel. The flip side is that not everyone is invited to the new Dubai. 500,000 Aziri refugees, survivors of the war against neighboring Armenia, eke out a living on a long, motionless journey in abandoned railroad cars far from the spoils of the oil trade. After the fall of the USSR, Nagorno-Karabakh, a region of Azerbaijan with a mainly Armenian population, was beset with unrest. The Russians distributed weapons to both sides, but in 1994, Baku signed its lucrative contract with the Western majors. Moscow was infuriated. They encouraged the Armenians, who fought and won independence for Karabakh, a place that Baku had dreamed of reconquering. A war regarded as ethnic had a distinct smell of petrol. Three years earlier, in Moscow, Boris Yeltsin addressed the crowd from a T-72 tank. The Russian president had stopped an attempted revolt by neo-communists. 
It would be his job to build the new liberal Russia the Western democracies wanted. Through a lack of maintenance and funding, the Russian oil industry was in a pitiful state. The new president needed money to save the country from ruin. Anatoly Chubais, an ambitious young minister, provided a solution. His idea was simple, to privatize the oil companies. Fresh from university, not yet 30 years old, they'd run businesses and started banks with no fear or doubt. Berezovsky, Abramovich, Kordakovsky, a dozen or so men who seized the privatized companies for a pittance. Dans toute la décennie 90, euh, la Russie appartient aux oligarques. Pour des prix absolument dérisoires, euh, ces jeunes types se sont retrouvés propriétaires d'un certain nombre d'actifs pétroliers de premier plan en Russie. Ces oligarques tiennent le pays et il y a une telle osmose entre eux et l'entourage de Boris Yeltsin au Kremlin Au fond, the seven sisters flocked to a new El Dorado and were welcomed with open arms. Russian oil needed technology and investments, and the new young owners needed dollars. The Russian oil fields were for sale, and the majors needed to buy. William Ramsey of the French Institute of International Relations. Everybody thought the right answer for getting the Russian petroleum sector back on its feet because it had been struggling was to get western companies in western technologies western finance all of that managerial skill put it to work and build up the russian petroleum sector in order to do that uh, these these basically these petro oligarchs were created as the counterpart the vis-a-vis -vis for the western companies now whenever i hear the passive like that i get curious who was creating those oligarchs and why? What gave them the power or the right to do that? Other people have to work hard for a living. Some people are created as multi-millionaires or billionaires. I wonder why. These are interesting questions we should be asking more of. They're not going to get answered today because we've got to finish due to time. Uh, if you'd like to download this or any previous shows, you can do so from our Unwelcome Guests archive, unwelcomeguests.net slash archive. You can also download 100 episodes at a time at our downloads page, unwelcomeguests.net slash downloads. I'd encourage you to do that. If you found this show enlightening, do share it with your friends. Our theme tune is by Billy Bragg and Wilco, with lyrics by Woody Guthrie. As always, I value your feedback on the show. You can email me, unwelcome at unwelcomeguests.net.